Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Callahan. And hey, everybody. I'm Mark Shank. Well, it's exciting today. We have a new guest, um, Melody potts Rezoir, and she is the founder of Teach for Australia, founder and CEO. And so welcome, Melody. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, gentlemen. Good to be here. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, yeah, so we learned about Teach for Australia through our good friend, uh, Stephen Merchenberg, who put us together. And, uh, and I, wanted to, I wanted all our listeners to learn about the great work that you do, uh, Melody, and, and your team. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit of a, an overview. What, what is this Teach for Australia? And, <laughs> and how did you get it started? That's what I want to know. Oh, that's a good story. Um, Teach for Australia is a nonprofit uh, educational charity. We work with low-income, regional, rural and remote schools, and we seek to help them build their human capital. Um, we do that uh, through a couple of, of programs. The flagship program, which is, I guess, um, uh, synonymous with our name, uh, is a program where we recruit exceptional people from all walks of life, from all sorts of backgrounds, everything from A to Z, aerospace engineering through to zoology. And uh -huh. we um, ask them to teach in low-income schools and help them become teachers, qualified teachers as they do so. But it's our leadership development program. So we're, we're asking them to do this commitment, this two-year minimum commitment, and most of them stay on in education for a lifetime. But um, we ask them to do that initially to just, um, you know, develop themselves as leaders and develop their students' full potential. Uh, another program that we run is a future leaders program uh, where we work with middle, early career middle leaders in schools, often in companies or schools alike, things get lost in that middle layer. And yeah. so if you can build the capability in the middle, um, then you've got more of a chance of, of really achieving change. So... Um, we hope to grow a community of leaders committed to educational equity. That's great. Now, you mentioned low-income schools. Does that mean schools in areas that are, uh, have that lower economic um, know, yeah. sort of abilities? Is that, is that the main thing? Yeah, schools um, where, you know, the, the, the families and communities are facing additional challenges. So that might be yeah. joblessness, intergenerational poverty, um, just remoteness uh, and, and lack of access to a lot of things that, you know, people in capital cities think are, are usual. Um, so where we see true differences in educational attainment and, and outcomes for children. Right, right. And, and does this include cities? Is it in, in, yes, metropolitan? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, there's, there's um, pockets of disadvantage everywhere. Um, and so we work 50% uh, of our placements historically are in rural, regional and remote areas. Um, but the other 50% are in the outer burbs of, of capital cities. Interesting. Mm. Right. How did you get started in all this, though? Now, how, how long has Teach for Australia been going, actually? We've been going since 2008. That was right. when we um, first started uh, recruiting great people. And we're now about to place our 12th cohort and that cohort will be teaching across Victoria, the Northern Territory, WA, Tasmania, and expanding into South Australia. And we just got word from New South Wales that they're keen to also look at how we might develop something together with them. So slowly living up to our name, Teach for Australia. Yeah, yeah, getting right across the country. Fantastic. Oh, that's a, a pretty exciting. I remember we were chatting just before Christmas and you'd 
just heard that the New South Wales uh, opportunity was on the table and uh, you yeah, were very excited. It had, just, it had just been announced. It It is exciting. I mean, we, we've obviously got a number of things we're going to need to navigate. Um, because the core program that we run, that we've been running now for, for 12 years, and our largest ever cohort is currently in training and what is a very different way to be trained um, given given the pandemic, uh, a virtual virtual route. Um, there's 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 various, um, I guess, stakeholders that have a view uh, as to how people should come into the profession. And so we're gonna need to navigate a fair few uh, of those concerns to make sure that we're building something that, that everyone can live with. Um, but we're really excited. And, and one of the premises, I guess, of the program and how it runs is that individuals come in you know, with prior degrees, often with a, a significant life experience and they, um, they earn their teaching qualification whilst they are teaching. They do some initial preparation um, that gets them ready to enter the classroom, but doesn't matter what pathway you take, it's about the impact that you make. Uh, everyone has to have a first day of teaching. So um, they, they end up teaching before they've finished their degree, but they get a lot of coaching and support along the way. That's cool. Now, we always like to hear the foundation stories for any organisations, and I'm sure you've probably told how you got started in with Teach for Australia many times, but um, we would love to hear that story, Melody. Sure, sure. Lay it on us. <laughs> well, um, it's, it's always interesting when, when you talk about the genesis of an organisation that you founded, you know, where does the story begin? You know, mm. we're, we're, and you can pick a number of moments. But for me, and this is something that I came to realize um, after a number of years of leading the organization, I never was really comfortable telling my personal story and the connection that it has to the founding of Teach for Australia. Um, but uh, after probably too many years, I'm, I'm too embarrassed to say how many, I realized the importance because that actually is the genesis of TFA. So a, a bit about me and then about TFA. Um, I grew up in rural Appalachia, um, probably now a bit famous given Hillbilly Elegy is now, now out on Netflix. Um, that was not my background. I had loving right. parents who were very supportive, but we didn't have a lot. And it was a few teachers um, peppered throughout my, my schooling that really made a difference. Um, Mr. Mackey in years, you know, uh, six to eight, Miss um, Tate, um, uh, Miss Gary, who thought she was Cleopatra reincarnated. Um, I hope she never listens to this. She was slightly mad, but she was amazing as a teacher. So rigorous, high standards. Mr. Mackey was just warm, fuzzy. Um, and so people who just enter your life at a point in time where you need what they've got. And uh, if they hadn't helped me see my potential, then, you know, I wouldn't have had the set of choices that I have today. And our mission at Teach for Australia is of an Australia where every child, regardless of background, has greater choice for their future. And that's my story. You know, if it hadn't been for those teachers and a lot of other good circumstances, such as loving parents, um, I wouldn't have had the choice of going to university as first in my family, of then, you know, working for BCG and then through the BCG diaspora, hearing about this place called Cape York. So I, I came to Australia 16 years ago uh, to, to spend time um, with Noel Pearson up in Cape York 
uh, and some of the work that was happening there. And that was my introduction to Australia. It's also how I met my husband and here I still am. Um, but the, the, the Teach for Australia bit starts to come in. I mean, that's my own personal lived experience of the power of education. Uh, the Teach for Australia bit starts to come in because I had a really, really good friend. Um, he was a bridesman at my wedding and his name was David Jernigan. And he did a program in America called Teach for America. And he lived with me while he was, we were roommates in Atlanta after we graduated uh, from uni. And he lived with me while he did that experience. And so I saw what he went through every day. He then went on to found a school uh, and then eventually uh, became deputy superintendent of Atlanta public schools, you know, a, a large school system. So here's a man who turned down an offer to Price Waterhouse to go teach in a low income area. And he was mm. hooked for life. Right. And we were talking about some of the challenges, some of the push and pull challenges in education in Cape York and the Cape York context, um, which is obviously I got a lot more stories behind that. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there's something in this. Maybe all of these expats from down south, as I called them, all these well-intentioned volunteers who are coming from big corporates to spend time uh, in in um, in remote Cape York, maybe they would go one step further and actually teach in the schools if they were given the opportunity. And so the, the genesis kind of of Teach for Australia's idea started there, conversations with Noel, conversations with community, conversations with teachers in those communities. But then it actually came together. So I, I wrote the business plan. I even submitted it as one of my assignments when I was doing my, my master's degree. But it kind of came together because I wasn't the only one with this idea. I mean, it's not revolutionary, right? Like, how do you get great talent to stand alongside the great talent that's already in the system? How do you get great talent to go where it's needed most? You know, there was the Peace Corps that Kennedy did in the 60s and um, uh, various and sundry volunteer initiatives. How, how, how do you do that? Well, um, Governments, uh, notably Julia Gillard in 2008, um, when she was uh, education minister, and um, then the, the um, Brumby government here in Victoria, um, they were also grappling with this, and they were looking overseas, and so Gillard started quoting Teach for America. I happened to know a bit about that. Didn't do it, but knew it through my friend David. You know, I, I um, saw that the Victorian government was quoting Teach First, which was an initiative that followed on all with the same ethos, you know, getting great talent right. where it's needed most. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a, a nugget. I've, I've got a, I've got a Harvard assignment. <laughs> I've done the, the bones of a business plan. Maybe I've got something to add to, to what governments are now talking about as well. And so the stars aligned, the federal Time means everything, isn't it? Melody yeah. with these things, you know, and, the, uh, yeah. It was obviously in the zeitgeist. People were looking for it and uh, they needed another sort of strand to, to you know, sort of expand out, and, if you like, what's what yeah. was there already. Yeah, and was able to kind of knit together. I mean, it, it was 90-hour um, weeks and, and you know, a bit, a bit mad, but we were able to knit together a proposition. And so Victoria was the first to really embrace the idea that maybe different routes uh, into, into the profession um, could still yield good outcomes for kids uh, and schools. And 12 years on, I think we've proved that. That's, that's fantastic context. And uh, I guess if now that we've got that context, the, uh, 
in our corporate story, storytelling paper that we that we published recently, yeah. one of the great applications of story is in the the uh, I guess the the communication of strategy, not necessarily development, but the communication yeah. of strategy. Yeah. And yeah. this is a, a challenge that you are facing with with uh, Teach for Australia. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm I'm kind of interested to hear your take on what you saw the problem as being first of all, and then what happened. So I think, you know, if we, if we think back to that stars align moment, and this was never really my, my kind of core belief, um, but it was certainly the narrative that took hold. Um, and, and I think sometimes, you know, uh, politicians, others, they just need that very simple soundbite. And it was so that the kind of starting premise that was projected onto us um, was if you just get great teachers, you'll solve everything. If you can just get great teaching, then, you know, that, that's the silver bullet. And we know that poverty, we know that inequity is a lot more complicated than that. Um, so, but nonetheless, I mean, that, that was the task initially, just to prove the thing, to prove that actually, you know, folks who'd done aerospace engineering and zoology were willing to, to move across into teaching. And so for the first, I would say, 10 years, even though we always had in our core a belief that the problem was way more complex and that it was going to take leadership for the long haul to solve it, leadership at all levels of the system, we kind of positioned ourselves and oriented ourselves towards the teaching. The teaching will solve it. And that's the first 10 years of Teach for Australia, simplified. And and then our 10 year anniversary happened. And I thought, I'm about to speak, you know, at one of our events and, and, and it's a time for celebration, absolutely. But I just had this rock in my stomach and I couldn't figure out, you know, exactly why. And I, I, then I realized, well, it's because I think there's so much more. There's more potential that we haven't unlocked. And what is that potential? I mean, that potential is the potential of our young people that we're here to serve but it's through the, the leverage of the potential of the adults who've had the, the privilege of building a relationship with them as their teachers and their school leaders. And they're doing amazing work individually, but we've not networked them together. We've not taken what are now a thousand and growing alumni and actually found ways to knit them together after the two year experience that they shared. And, um, and so it began the beginning of a different kind of strategy evolution, but you need a different story to change the narrative that you've had for the last 10 years that you've kind of fallen into because everyone else keeps projecting it onto you. Mm. And so... Um, so you're sort of taking it, control of the, your own story. You're finding bit. your voice again. Yeah, you know, right. It, people in storytelling talk about, I mean, it's my own personal story, right, that for so long... I didn't either feel comfortable or I didn't know how um, to authentically connect my own personal story to the work, even though I knew it internally, I didn't have the confidence externally. And, and I think similarly um, for TFA, you know, we, we kept talking about leadership and kept getting kind of um, all there, there, you know, the little pat on the head, you know, a little startup organization, but you're doing a great job attracting great people. Just keep doing that. Um, and, and I think we found our voice through a corporate strategy telling process. Um, and 
it's really exciting, but we're still at the beginning of it. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we had fun uh, going through that process of, you know, helping to craft that strategy story with you and uh, your team and, and doing it all online. That was, uh, that was great. You know, sort of having all those faces, how many people we would have had about 25 or 30 people you had you know, to, you involved. Had to, the Zoom screen didn't hold us all. You had to press That's it. We had to scroll. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess one of the things I'm always interested in, you know, as, as people do that is, you know, what are some of the unexpected outcome from it? You know, things that, you know, just happen. You go, oh, wow, look, that's, that's, that's interesting that that happened or got involved. Is there anything that yeah. has popped I- into your mind? I think there's three three things that immediately popped into my mind. Um, the first was how culture building it was. You know, the, the, the opportunity to kind of have a space that's held where different people in the organization of different tenures, of different experiences, including those who'd actually done the program, alumni of the programs, um, just holding that space and getting everyone uh, giving everyone a microphone and an opportunity to tell their version of a story yeah, um, yeah. and to see the commonalities and the differences and the challenges. But there's something that's culture building about it um, that, that is the process as much as the product. Mm-hmm. The second thing that popped to mind was, um, I, I don't know if you'll recall that, that you know, one of my staff, Bree, she just was amazing at the storytelling, all of a sudden you you find your storytellers as well through the process, and you think, well, there's a spokesperson. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll take a seat. Um, uh, you 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 discover new voices in your in your mm. organization, and That's then the final bit, and I, and I think this is um, both a blessing and a continued challenge. Uh, the final bit are the anti stories, uh, and I think we hadn't we hadn't really. I think we'd always tried to solve the critique of what we do and, and uh, any organization can, can be critiqued through data and stats and figures and technical answers. And I loved that aha moment when, Sean, I think you said to us, the only way you can beat an anti-story is with a better story. And if you don't have one, you just have to accept it and invite the, the person in to craft one with you. And that was just, that, that has stuck with me. Um, mm. Yeah, and, it's and an interesting, for, for our listeners, uh, I don't know if we've talked about anti-stories that much, Mark, in our podcast. Can you remember? No, um, we haven't. No, so it's a, it's a concept that goes through a lot of our work that if, uh, you know, whatever story you're telling, the audience has their own stories in their own head. And some of them are counter to your story. You know, they're like a little battle is going on. And uh, as, as Melody points out, we, we have this view that, you know, you can't beat a story with just fact and, you know, stats. You have to beat it with that plus a better story, right? You've got you to gotta immerse those facts and stats in a better story. And if you don't have one, yeah, work with people to build one or you have to do something, you know, you have to you know, take action of some sort yeah, so to trigger a new when, story, right? When we when we first uh, bumped into this concept of anti-stories, it was when, one of our first strategy stories working with a, uh, with a government organisation and uh, they had just been part of a, a massive 
um, uh, merge. So three departments merged into a single department. And so we were working with them on their strategy story. And a key part of it was integration. You know, three big departments all doing their own thing, becoming one. And uh, so I ran a, a session with the leadership team and it was, you know, it was really, you know, it was, it was great. You know, you know, integration and this. And I was in the, uh, in the lift leaving the building and uh, a guy used to work for me in the Air Force was in the lift. Hey, how are you, Cole? We had this chat and, uh, you know, what are you doing here? And I told him, uh, you know, strategy story, integration. And we're in the, getting near the bottom of the, the, uh, the lift ride. And he said, integration, no, one, no one's going to integrate here. We're all just waiting for the next divorce. And it's like, what? <laughs> and so I bought him a cup of coffee and he explained to me that in 1992, the same three departments have been merged together. And then uh, five years later, they were split apart again because it didn't work. And it was called the great divorce. And he goes, we're all just waiting for the next divorce. And so I was like, wow. So, and I went and spoke to a bunch of people and it didn't matter when been there 20 years or 20 minutes, they all knew about the divorce. So uh, it's an anti-story. So you can get up and talk about integration as much as you like but they can't hear you because they're deafened by the sound of the anti-story. So yeah, that was, uh, that was where we went, whoa, this is important stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And machinery of government changes are always just so painful. Yeah. Leave a wake yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah, behind. that's right. Yeah. 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 Hey, the, Melody, the... you know, with, the, with um, Teach for Australia, I mean, your cohort is going through now, you know, you said it was your biggest cohort. By the way, how many people are going through this cohort, the 12th cohort? Yes, around 175. 175 new teachers going into the system. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Well done. Um, I guess one of the things I'm so you know a lot of people focus on the strategy story, you know, and telling that story. That's all good. You know, you've got to do that. But that cultural element, and you sort of touched on a little bit that cultural element. You sort of have to find stories of the strategy actually happening. You know, like examples. Have you had any success in, you know, sort of finding those and, and retelling them? And uh, what's been your experience in that? We, I mean, <laughs> yes, yes. And the, the, the challenge now for us is, uh, well, always to continue to keep our eye out and curate more of those. Um, yeah. But in that networked alumni, to get them telling it to themselves um, and to each other and including others that don't necessarily carry the badge of the program. So I think there's just so much more opportunity for, for this to continue. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a quite live uh, example that I only just heard of this past week where our mission, you know, grow a community of leaders committed to educational equity. One of our uh, alumni who'd been teaching in uh, the ACT for, for years um, has now just taken up the role of uh, education advisor to the new minister for education in the NT. Uh, which brings our total number of educational advisors to ministers, both federal and and state, uh, to about four or five now, uh, which is not, it's a handful, but out of our alumni pool, I mean, that's a pretty amazing result. Did you Uh, imagine that career path for your alumni? I I dreamed. Um, (laughs) uh, and, And to see that it's, you know, when it, when it came to fruition with one, I thought, oh, okay, you know, not I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shout that just yet um but now that we've gotten to five maybe more um certainly more in the pipeline I'd guarantee there's they're just on fire um 
the idea that someone with that kind of lived experience of working with children, walking through the classroom door with all sorts of different um, challenges and potential is going to be helping to craft education policy for all students. I, yeah, I mean, that's so really exciting yeah. kind of scale of impact. Um, you can't yeah. you can't underestimate. Like my wife's an assistant principal at a primary school, in probably an area that you would classify as a low economic area. And you know, I hear the day to day stories of what life is like in a primary school uh, like that, and they have a specialty in uh, kids with special needs. So they have like thirty children, I think, that have special needs, and they have counsel not counselors, what do they call them, therapists who um, you know work with those kids. But I mean, to just give you one snippet of their life, right? It's uh, my wife told me this that they had this they had this boy who I think he's in fifth grade. He likes to bolt, right? He just when he finds the front door open he's out the front door. And on this particular day, he shoots out the front door and he's looking at his watch and he's running as fast as he can. The teachers have just worked out he's bolted. And so the principal and assistant principal and a teacher, they're all running after this kid. And he's looking at his watch and then he's calling, he's asking people, um, oh no, he doesn't have his watch. He's just asking people what the time was. He's going, what's the time, what's the time? And he's working out whether the bus will arrive just at the time he needs to jump on the bus. And almost like Starsky and Hutch style, the bus arrived, the doors open, he jumps on and the teachers don't make it, right? So they have to run back, they get their car, they follow the bus and they just have to wait until the next stop. And then they pull the car over, they leave the doors open, they jump on. But of course, they can't grab the kid or anything. They just have to sit next to the kid. So they're sitting there just, you know, like, Almost like the Blues Brothers listening to the, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, the elevator music. And there they finally get to the end and they say to the bus driver, don't open all the doors. I mean, this is just the day-to-day life of a teacher, right? It's, oh, it's crazy. And so they, they, will, they will throw so many curveballs, that is for sure. I mean, another story that just popped to mind, well, two, we now have a number of participants in training or, or in the program uh, as teachers who were taught by previous cohorts oh, really? and inspired to join the program because of the impact in part that that teacher had. So we're starting to see a true cycle. Yeah. Um, and another, another story that um, I, I just love is one of our placement schools and where we also have a, a high number of alumni working um, is a, a school that works with children and young people who've completely disengaged. So one of their one of their strategies is to go walk the halls of shopping malls during the the school day and look for young people who ought to be in school and then strike up a conversation, and kind of get a sense of of, of how to re-engage them back. Uh, it took a number of years, but she graduated. This one student graduated uh, with an ATAR that got her into arts law. And she's now doing that and working for us as a, um, what we call a campus ambassador, someone who helps us also find individuals on campus to have a conversation with about how they might like to give back and make a difference. Um, yeah, so she's, yeah. she's connecting us with other great individuals from a diverse 
background um, and, and lived experience so that we can talk to them about what potentially they might want to do after they graduate. So it's just really amazing. Mm, and and wow. for those stories, there are also the stories of those who slipped through the cracks, right? Because the system, not, not going back to the, it's not teaching alone that's going to solve this. The, the system still has cracks. Uh, and I'm sure your wife, Sean, sees that uh, as well. Absolutely. But the day-to-day life, you know, it's, it's, um, it's character building. It, you learn more about yourself. Uh, I hear this time and time again. Um, and you just really fall in love with the kids and all of their shenanigans. Do you get much uh, opportunity to get out amongst the uh, schools? This year, no. <laughs> Not this but, year, no. Uh, yeah. true, yeah. But, um, <laughs> I had school in my own home. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> Hurricane Harry, school, school of hard knocks. Um, uh, but yes, I, I do. I try to get out uh, a few visits a term and meet with principals and do a bit of classroom observation uh, and just get a sense for how our teachers are, are um, contributing. Yeah. That's terrific. And so if you, if you look back since you've had this, the, the new strategy and then the, the conversion of that into a strategy story, what, what, what's one of the things that is a really significant change that you've noticed having, having yeah. uh, that Two. story available? Two, two things, and, and, and one's just absolutely critical for an, a nonprofit organization um, that relies on um, philanthropy uh, in, in part to make our work happen. Uh, and one is a leadership uh, uh, reflection. So having the story just makes conversations. I know it was meant to be an internal story um, that, that, you know, it's really crafted more to help align staff uh, around the 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 North Star, but it actually, with some modification, works quite well for us as an external story. And that's often and the case it, as well. Yeah, and I've yeah. used it with, um, you know, supporters, champions, donors, and yeah, it 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 resonates. Um, I've also sought advice uh, in in telling it and then saying, "What do you think of this story?" So that I can also try to understand whether they might have some anti-stories in their head, whether they might have some, some reservations and it's easier to kind of discuss those in a story rather than discuss those on a PowerPoint. Um, the second impact is more, uh, I guess, a personal one, but I just have a level of confidence in the alignment of my team around what matters and and a confidence then in, in standing up, whether it's in staff forums or, or otherwise, and, and just being able to say, this is us, you know, this is who we are, this is our voice, this is what we stand for. Um, and it just, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's removed a lot of noise. Mm. And, and look, of course, that, that, that's a, I'm so glad I asked that question, because if you imagine, um, for, for most leaders, that concern about the level of alignment of their leadership team uh, is, is it's a huge thing. And yeah. uh, we notice this when we do these strategy story projects is that uh, often the first, well, what we talk about is it's, um, alignment. How do you, how do you achieve that, uh, yeah. that alignment? And I remember back in 1979 during my first, de- first degree 
Uh, and uh, we we're talking about the importance of strategic alignment. And here we are in 2020, and it's so rare. I mean, I, I recall that uh, a project we we did with a, uh, a global not-for-profit, and uh, and Sean, you were running that first workshop with the board and the uh, and the leadership team. Apologies, <laughs> that would be Jack. Everybody, that's Jack. Jack the Ripper Russell, hopefully not going to disrupt us anymore. Sorry, please continue, Mark. Uh, and so they, this not-for-profit had spent a considerable amount of time and money developing their strategy with one of the big uh, strategy, you know, one of the big consulting houses. They'd all been involved. And Sean started, there were 12 people in the room, and he said, I want everybody to take out a piece of paper and write down the single most important thing for this organisation to focus on in the next 12 months. And Sean, how many answers did you get? I got 12. In fact, we were going to go around the second, second round. <laughs> continuations. <laughs> yeah. So sell yeah. 12 different responses. And, and it's very hard for an organization to act in alignment when you've got people just spearing off in different directions like that. So, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a pretty cool outcome. Uh, and, and it's like it's, it's, it's really hard to quantify. You know, like what's the, you know, what's the return on investment of a strategy story? Well, <laughs> it's, can I can I say it's that worth, anyway? it's worth the the uh, the fewer headaches and and fewer grey hairs. That's for sure. That's it. Yeah, that's it. But I think it, uh, it's even more challenging in a not for profit because um, people join not for profits because they're true believers in things, right? And like that charity you were talking about, Mark. You know, those people really cared about each that individual thing that they wanted done and they thought was most important, you know, they would die in a ditch for that, right? Yep. And, and so it's a dynamic you don't see as much in corporates, right? You know, someone will, they'll just work out, okay, here are the four big bold moves that we're making and everyone goes, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, we'll do that. Whereas in a not-for-profit, people are going, you know, they've, they've come in to, to make this difference. They've the Absolutely. whole life sort of sits behind it. Yeah. I, only agree, I only agree with 50% of what you just said. <laughs> I totally agree with you about the not-for-profit thing, but uh, I, the same thing applies in business, but just not for the same reason, right? It's not that they're completely committed to this one thing and then it's that they run this part of the business and they're very focused on that part of the business. And for their part of the business, they think this bit. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the same dynamic still applies. You just don't have... So the same result, which is people going in different directions, just kind of for a different motivation. I think yeah. potentially I, also a different kind of uh, emotional undertone uh, to it to it uh, as well. You know, the, the emotional undertone of of the the kind of social justice. I mean, almost all no, no, nonprofits have this kind of social justice underneath that that just um, can sometimes mean you rust on a little bit more. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's yeah. all good. Fantastic. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you, Melody, and uh, learning a little bit more about Teach for Australia. And uh, if anyone wants to learn more about your organisation, where should they go? Oh, the website's probably a good place to start. So just yeah. teachforaustralia.org. No, no, Fantastic. Uh, no dot au, just, just the plain old dot org. Yeah. Fantastic. The, um, one of the things that we're going to do as part of this podcast uh, is send out a bit of a, a survey to all our listeners and also to our broader anecdote uh, sort of community uh, just to see whether they like these sort of uh, 
guest appearances because this is new for us, Melody. We we normally it's just Mark and I chatting to one another and uh, getting ourselves into trouble. Um, but in the last month or so, we've we've chatted to a whole bunch of people, haven't we, Mark? And and it's sort of been part of this new paper that we've written on the corporate storytelling paper. And and just we want to show people that storytelling was more than just or story work, I should say, is more than just storytelling. It could be used in so many different places. Um, so anyway, keep an eye out for that. If you see the the link uh, from us uh, for the survey, yeah, if you can, if everyone can uh, respond, that would give us a really good sense of what you like in the podcast. Um, okay, so any last things, any last questions, anything you, you want to leave with our listeners, uh, Melody, before we, we head off? Oh, just, yeah, last um, pitch for Teach for Australia. <laughs> no. There's a donate button on that teachforaustralia.org. <laughs> no, no, just um, I think, you know, it's it's for, for so many um, people, regardless of their stage in life, I think finding a way to make a contribution to society to leave it better than you found it can be one of the most rewarding things. So uh, just a, a, a good little push for all those listeners to, to continue to make a difference if you're making one. And, and if you feel like there's something more you could be doing, um, there's lots of organizations out there that would love to have you. Mm, great. That's a great way to end. Well, thanks everyone for listening to Anecdotally Speaking. And of course, tune in next week on a Tuesday for another episode of How to Put Stories to Work. Bye for now. Thanks, Melody. Anecdotally Speaking was engineered by Dave Stokes from Author to Audio.